First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse three. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul is pleading with Timothy to stay true and to stand true in God's ministry that's been entrusted to him in verses 1 through 11. In broadest terms, this letter to Timothy is going to serve as a blueprint for leaders to understand the church and its message, that's chapter 1. And the church and its members, that's chapter 2. And the church and its ministry, that's chapters 3 and 4. And the church and its, well, the church and its minister, chapter 3 and 4. And the church and its ministry, chapters 5 and 6. So it appears that Timothy is tired. He's grown weary in the work. It could very well be that he's burdened or that he's been suffering. We know that later Paul will tell him to take a little wine for his, for his many illnesses. It could very well be that Timothy's experienced what some people call in the ministry burnout. You know, we all experience times of trial, times of difficulty, Times of sorrow, times of opposition. Maybe you have a job or you have a circumstance or a difficulty that you're just thinking about giving up. V. Raymond Edmund used to say, it's always too soon to give up. And so, since God has entrusted Timothy with some of the tasks that's been assigned to him, Paul is going to encourage him. And by the way, this is a word of encouragement. It's a word of edification. He wants to build him up, not tear him down. And since God entrusted Timothy with his ministry, verses 1 through 11, 
the Bible makes it abundantly clear that he's going to enable Timothy to do the work in verses 12 through 17. And that becomes a principle. If God calls you, he's going to make a provision for you. If God wants you to do something, he's going to give you the, the, the tools that are necessary and the resources that are necessary to accomplish it. It sounds almost like a cliche, but it remains true. Where God guides, he provides. And this is also going to include equipping for the battles that lie ahead in verses 18 through 20. Dr. Robert Gromacki gives the title of this, his commentary on this little book, Stand True to the Charge. And I like that. In other words, this is Timothy's or Paul's opportunity to tell Timothy, stand true to the commandment or the charge that's been given to you. In order to stand true, the church and the message that's been given to the church, Timothy's going to have to affirm that message, believe and embrace that message. Now, I want you to think about this. He's going to have to stand true to the message of the gospel. But also, that means he's going to have to resist and reject the false teachers and the false teaching that had crept into the church. It's possible that these false teachers were in part contributing to Timothy's troubles you know, there's few things that are more difficult in ministry than a constant bombardment from people who don't necessarily understand or embrace the truth because they've been taught wrongly. Timothy, again, might have been wondering if he was called to the ministry or if he could resist these false teachers. He might have been wondering if he was the right man for the right job at the right time. And you might have some of that difficulty from time to time. Wondering, am I the right person? Have I been placed in the right place to do the right thing? Timothy was a young man seeking to minister to older people. And that's not an easy job we're going to discover in chapters 4 and 5. It may be that Timothy missed Paul and he's ready to move on from Ephesus. He's going, just like you, Paul, you stayed here. You taught here for three years. Maybe it's time for me to move on. It may be that Timothy, like so many pastors and leaders, have been tempted to either neglect their pastoral duties or their personal devotions, or they might be like the 1,500 ministers who leave their church every single month because they've given up, because they can't go forward. And so you can imagine that people who are struggling and people who are hurting sometimes need words of, of encouragement. Timothy might have been wondering, is this the right time to stay or the, the right time to go? And of course, Paul may have been the one who God used to entrust the ministry at Ephesus to Timothy. But this becomes an important point. It isn't a ministry that Paul has given to Timothy. It's a ministry that God has given to Timothy through Paul. 
And if you have any kind of ministry, and if you're beholden to anyone for that ministry, in the end, it's God who wills and works. It's God who's gifted you. It's God who's called you. It's God who places you in positions of authority or responsibility. Paul knew that the false teachers would arise and promote their own peculiar teachings or their own version of Christianity. And Paul points out that false teachers would teach false doctrine in verse 3, engage in trivial, divisive arguments in verse 4. False teachers are more interested in controversy than faithfully spreading the gospel in verse 4. False teachers turn away from the personal evidences of God to meaningless talk in verse 6. False teachers like all the benefits that go along with being a teacher, but they don't have anything valuable to say in verse 7. False teachers are willing to pit the law and the gospel against one another, but they wind up understanding neither or the plan of God in verses 8 through 11. So we look, Paul's admonition false teachers and their false teaching in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. By the way, if you're unfamiliar with when he went into Macedonia, you might want to take the time and reread parts of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, where in Acts chapter 20, Paul along with Timothy, are making their way through the northern part, just north of Greece in the ancient province of Macedonia. They must have had conversations to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So apparently, Paul's in Macedonia. Timothy's going to return to Ephesus. And Paul urges Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Now let's talk about that word urgent just for a moment. When you hear the word urgent, it implies immediate action. If you have children, particularly small children, and they say, I got to go now. It's urgent. That means you can't delay. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's part of what Paul is doing in his urgency for Timothy, that means that he needed to stay the course. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Sometimes urgency doesn't mean doing something new. Sometimes urgency means a renewed effort or perseverance under pressure to do what's always been done. In other words, is the gospel always an urgent message? Is the call to salvation always urgent? Is personal relationship with God and righteousness and holy living always something urgent? Yes. We should pause for a moment and ask a different kind of a question. Lord, what are the responsibilities that you've entrusted to me? Lord, what is it that you called me to do in my marriage or in my church or in the place of business where you have me? Lord, what is it that you want me to do? What are my responsibilities? And you know what your responsibilities are. 
So the issue isn't do you know or not know what you're supposed to be doing. The issue then becomes, am I faithful in what I'm doing? Am I diligent in what I am doing? Or am I lukewarm and half-hearted in what I'm doing? Has my heart grown cold and the circumstances grown dry? Do you have someone in your life urging you to remain faithful to the Lord and remain faithful to what God has called you to do? Or is it possible that maybe God's calling you to be that person who provides encouragement and edification in order for a person to remain faithful to the call that's been placed on their life? And so... Timothy didn't need to embrace the false teaching that was being brought by the false teachers. But look what it says. But rather that Timothy, look what it says. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. By the way, the word charge is an important word in the text. It's a military term. It means command. This is the word that carries with it the idea of a lawful order given by a superior to a subordinate with the expectation that it be obeyed. Think about that in relationship to parents and their children. When a mom or a dad says to a child, I need you to do this. And you remind the child, it's not a suggestion. This is not a suggestion. This is an order that I'm giving you with the expectation that it's going to be obeyed. Paul writes, charge some, not everyone. Why? It would appear that the false teachers and their false doctrine may have been few in number, but they were significant in their influence in the congregations of the assemblies that had gathered together in the area of Ephesus and in that part of the world. And so what does this mean? Command or charge some that they teach, look what it says, no other doctrine. Well, wait a minute. I thought we're all entitled to our opinion. Not when it comes to the gospel. Well, what if I don't believe that Jesus is the Lord? Yeah, you're right. You are entitled to your belief and your opinion. But it's one thing for you to, to believe that Jesus isn't the Lord, but it's another for you to teach and promote the idea that he's not the Lord or that you're saved by grace plus something else. And so the doctrine that he's making reference to, it's interesting. This is a compound word. That phrase, teach no other doctrine, in the Greek language means doctrine or teaching of a different kind. It's actually a compound word. The prefix different kind and the, and the root word doctrine. The teaching by the false teachers were teachings that were different from the apostles' teaching. We find that out in chapter 6 verses 3 and 4 when we, when we skip ahead. Paul writes, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, Paul has something in mind. The thing that he has in mind is essential Christianity. And those things that are essential in the Christian 
faith, if you will, is our belief about what kind of God is God? What kind of Savior is Jesus? What kind of salvation does he secure for us? And so if a person has a different view of God, a different view of Jesus, a different view of salvation, that's what he's talking about. And that's what he's refuting. And that's what he's reminding people. In Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 43, it talks about how they gathered together and they paid heed to the apostles' doctrine. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul tells the Galatians that, that, if, that if he or an angel from heaven preaches any other doctrine other than the teaching that's been given to them, that they should be accursed. And let's be honest for a moment. What is Paul asking Timothy to do? It's to live his life in the truth of the gospel and to stand against the, the false teachers and their teaching. I have a hard question for you. Is that going to be difficult for Timothy? Is it going to be hard to do? I think that the answer is yes. You know, when somebody says to you, I, I had this happen on Sunday. I, I, was, I was talking about the parables and I was talking about the influence and the evil influences that come into the church. And I happened to mention Christian science and I happened to mention Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And this particular person was raised in a Christian science tradition and had Mormon friends and maybe Jehovah's Witness friends. And when you say something like, the teachings of a particular group are wrong or they're inconsistent with what the Bible says. And then you point out to them that for the Mormon, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. For the Jehovah Witness, Jesus is the archangel Michael. And you point out that according to Paul's testimony and the teaching of the apostles, that Jesus is one person who is God in the flesh. He's one person who has forever and eternally been God. But he carries, he takes upon himself a new nature, a human nature. He is one person with two natures. Completely God, completely human. All of those positions can't be right at the same time in the same way. And so what Paul is asking Timothy to do is what each and every faithful minister in every single generation is called to do. In the simple sentence, read it for yourself. Teach no other doctrine provides a blueprint for pastors. Teach no other doctrine. Later he's going to say, but rather teach sound doctrine. And what makes for sound doctrine? It's all of the words of Jesus. It's all of the words that are contained in the Bible. It's your New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and everything that's said in those places. And look what Paul says in verse 4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So what are these fables? What are these endless genealogies that he's speaking of? They seem to be, the fables seem to be things that are fabricated or fanciful stories. These are things that are made up. 
These are things that are manufactured by teachers. I can't help but thinking of the LDS church and Mormons where Joseph Smith says an angel told him to go dig in a particular place in Camorra in New York and that there he would find golden tablets and that there would be written on it a new revelation. I don't doubt that something weird happened and I don't doubt that something supernatural happened. But how much of this is true and how much of this is false? Is it possible that false teachers fabricate things for any number of reasons? I think that the answer is yes. So when he says, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, I think what that means is these are things that are manufactured by teachers who appeal to Jewish roots or mystery religion sources. I'm going to suggest to you it may have included those who manufactured allegorical interpretations of real Jewish genealogies. Are there real genealogies in the Bible that records the time from Adam to the time of Abraham to the time of David to the time of Jesus? Yes. Is there anything wrong with these genealogies? No. So what is he making reference to? I'm going to suggest to you that he's making reference to false teachers who either fabricate false genealogies or who allegorically interpret the genealogies in the Old Testament in order to make a perverse point. In reality, these false doctrines of demons... We're meant to deceive, distort, and to cause people to go in a direction that isn't going to be healthy, but rather that is going to be harmful. False doctrines always pose as God's truth. False teachers don't say, oh, by the way, what I'm teaching you is false. That's not what they do. They disguise their teaching and then promote it as truth. The controversies promote disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. And that's one of the ways that you can tell that it's false. The word translated godly edification is very, very interesting. In the original language, it's the Greek word oikonomoi, oikonomei. That word sounds familiar to you. There's a word in our own language that has descended from that word. It's the Greek word economy. You know that word. Economics and economy. The word is, in, in context, it means God's word or God's economy. So when he's talking about which caused di disputes rather than godly edification he's speaking of God's economy let me put it to you a little bit differently he's talking about the sum and the substance of all of the things that are taught that makes life possible to live our lives as Christians that's what he means in other words he's talking about the currency of exchange 
in the Christian community which makes it possible for us to live as Christians. For us to live as Christians, we have to have access to the truth. In order to live as Christians, we have to have access to, to the truth, we have to believe the truth, and then we have to give each other the opportunity to exercise the truth. In that sense, Paul is making reference to God's work, God's economy, God's management, which is in faith. That is, we define and refute and defend against controversies by the Bible, by the gospel, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so people might say, well, why can't you all get along? And why can't you all just believe the same thing? Paul actually says that in 1 Corinthians in the opening chapter. He says, my brothers, he says, I pray that there would be no divisions among you. But there will be divisions among you. If one of you or more of you decide the Bible's not true or the Bible's not enough. And so Paul is making reference to the teachings that divide rather than unite. The Bible doesn't tell us to deny the truth or ignore the truth or dismiss the truth. We unite in the truth, the truth that God is the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead for our justification, that he ascended into heaven. All of the things that the church has always taught. So Paul warns Timothy and he condemns those whose lives are a parade of controversies and disputes and nonsense. So what can we place on this nonsense list? What could go on the things of fables, fabrications, and useless genealogies? What could we put on the nonsense list? I'm going to suggest to you things like the blood moon controversy. Some of you are familiar with all of the hype that went in. Hey, there's a series of celestial events that are unfolding and it's going to mean so much to the body of Christ. Or think about the year 2000. When we reach the year 2000, there's going to be some sort of catastrophic circumstance where there's going to be a bug in the computing system which is going to create chaos and create uh, huge problems. By the way, in the Y2K scare, what happened? Nothing. With the blood moon controversy, what happened? Nothing. You know, these things are interesting and they catch your eye and you think about them and you wonder whether or not they're true. But Paul is reminding Timothy that as you grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth and as you understand the Bible and what it says, to begin to cultivate a nonsense filter. And then he says, false teachers promote empty talk about love. In what sense? Look what it says in verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love. So why would Paul give such a charge? Now remember in verse 3 what we already read. 
As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, the purpose of the commandment, what commandment is he talking about? The Ten Commandments? No. Is he talking about, he's talking about the commandment from verse 3. Now, the purpose of the commandment, the charge in verse 3, what is the charge in verse 3? Don't teach any other doctrine other than the apostles' doctrine. You're under orders. And the purpose of the orders is outlined. The purpose is that love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere. Sincere in this case means without hypocrisy. It comes from a Latin phrase, sine, sire, which means without wax, which was a word that was used to describe it in that ancient culture of something that was real and true and genuine. And I've used this illustration over and over again with you, that in those days, they didn't, you couldn't go to Target or go to Sears and get family photos and they would have marble busts and they would chisel the mother and they would chisel the father and they would chisel the children. But sometimes like they would hit the marble and the nose would fall off like so the nose falls off. So rather than go through the whole horror of rebuilding this marble face, they would take marble powder, mix it with wax, stick the nose back on and it looks like nothing went wrong. And then the sun would come out and it would beat on the wax and the nose would fall off the face because it was, so they would want to purchase things that were sine sire, without wax, that it was what it says, that it, that it, it wasn't a fraud, that it wasn't a fake, that it really was what it claimed to be. So why is Paul giving this charge? He's giving the charge so that people in the real church can love each other with a pure heart, have a good conscience, a sincere faith. When love is absent, when the heart is impure, when the conscience is defiled, when faith is a fabrication, then guess what? You're in an unhealthy church. You're in an unhealthy community. Something's gone terribly wrong. You've abandoned the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul gives the charge to Timothy to promote the virtue of godly leadership in the church. The goal of the preaching of the truth and the warning of error was to call people to true salvation in Christ, which produces a love for God from a purified heart, a clean conscience, and a genuine faith. That's what John MacArthur says in his commentary. And I agree. And so, what motivated the false teachers? Love from a pure heart? Not really. Were the false teachers interested in purity? Not really. Were the false teachers interested in a good conscience? Not really. Were the false teachers interested in sincere faith? Not really. And so now all of a sudden you begin to understand that false teaching isn't just simply teaching that is wrong or teaching that is false. It is teaching that will erode love and, and purity 
and sincerity in any given congregation. So if the false teachers aren't motivated by love and they're not motivated by purity and they're not motivated by a sincere faith, then what are they motivated by? What do you suppose it is? What's motivating them? Something way more sinister. Self-promotion. Self-exaltation. It would seem that they're motivated some by curiosity, some in order to gain a following, some in order to have intellectual credibility. But Paul is telling Timothy that the true teacher is motivated by love and purity and sincerity of the true faith. The real teacher is motivated so that your life would be healthy. Your relationship with God will be healthy. Your friendship with Jesus will be healthy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Remember? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, who knows the rest? See God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Why do the pure in heart see God? It's because they can't see anything else. When I was a kid growing up, there was a commercial. It was the ivory soap commercial. It went, ivory soap is 99.9% pure. It doesn't have perfume. It doesn't have fillers and additive. The pure heart is pure, singular, and it's love for and commitment to the Lord Jesus. And because they can't see anything else, the pure in heart desire holiness over personal gain or personal happiness. In, in order to love properly, we have to love from a pure heart. In order to, to love properly, we also have to have a clear conscience. That means a conscience that's void of guilt. When I first came to this place and I began to pray and I began to ask God, Lord, I believe that you called me here to, to plant a church and, and to pastor the church and, and, and people would come and they would go, there's lots of churches in Littleton. There's lots of churches in Denver. We don't need another church. And then I read where someone ran off with the secretary or where the pastor stole the church funds. Is there room for a church where people love each other and they value purity and a good conscience and sincere faith? Is there room for one more church where people can come and pray with each other and minister to one another, encourage one another and love each other and build each other up? Is there room for one more church like that? In order to love properly, we have to love from a pure heart and a clear conscience, absent pride. And when we attempt to love each other without godly faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? That's not love. That's sentiment. And so when he says love from sincere faith, I'm going to suggest to you that he's talking about the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about some sort of sentimental 
sloppy agape. Let me make sure you understand what I'm talking about. When I use the word sentiment, sentiment is emotion without commitment. Sentiment is you watch the Hallmark Channel in a very sad movie about some person who gets leukemia and dies and it's all very sad and you cry and then you turn off the TV and you go about your life as if nothing really happened. Sentiment is going to a movie and watching a very sad movie and again crying but your life doesn't change. Sentiment is emotion without commitment. And so the love that he's talking about isn't some sort of emotion that you have for one another, but rather the love that you have that's been given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart that's motivated by the gospel. That's what he's talking about. In other words, he's not even talking about giving people money or giving people a job or giving people help. Imagine if I said to you, what, what, what is it that you'd like to do? I'd like to help people. Why do you want to help people? Because I feel good when I help people. You know, it's great that you feel good when you help people, but the motive for helping people in the Bible isn't so that you can feel good about yourself. It's so that God can be glorified and the gospel can be proclaimed. We serve people and love people in Christ's name in order to bring people to Jesus so that they would know Jesus and love him and serve him. Do we serve for service's sake? Not according to Paul. Do we serve in the hopes that people will come to Jesus? Of course. Will we serve even if they don't come to Jesus? Of course. We're told to do good to all especially those who are in the household of faith. Paul desires Timothy to teach and to serve in Christ's love, sound and sincere truth. And this is what's motivating him to say what he's saying. You know, a mother desires to feed her children wholesome, uncontaminated food. And we want to serve people sound doctrine and the truth that's found in God's word. What kind of a mother purposely feeds her children poison? I know what you're saying. A bad mother. That's exactly right. And look what Paul says. From which some have strayed. And have turned aside. To idle talk. What is Paul describing? From which some have strayed. What have they strayed? From the right teaching. What else have they, they strayed from? Love. Purity. Sincerity in the faith. They've wandered from there. Idle talk refers to conversations that don't seem to go anywhere. That have no rhyme or reason or logic. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. What is idle talk? Idle talk is irrelevant talk. It's talk that doesn't accomplish anything. This is the kind of talk that is not good. It's not encouraging. It's not edifying. The word could be translated fruitless discussion. I had a person years ago write an entire book in order to tell me that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. And I said... Now I understand why Diana divorced him. If you were married to the Antichrist, wouldn't you want to get a divorce? 
And then I pointed out to him all of the, the challenges that the Bible seems to indicate that this is probably not true, that it's probably not true, that all of the evidence seemed to, su to support that, that, that it wasn't true. And I said, hey, by the way, the moment that Prince Charles dies, will you burn every book that you wrote and will you promise to never, ever, ever teach about the Bible or Christianity because you have, been, have proven to be something and someone who's not helpful? He said, well, I'm only saying that there's the possibility. Really? From which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, fruitless discussion. Question. Where does false doctrine lead us? In the end, its fruit is darkness and deception and disaster. And so Paul points out that false teachers place personal ambition above the truth. Look what it says in verse 7. Now we begin to understand their motive. Desiring to be teachers of the law. Understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. What is it that they desire? To be teachers of the law. Now think carefully. Paul notes that these false teachers want to base their teaching authority on the law, the law of Moses, the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They claim the law of Moses as their source to promote their strange ideas. In other words, they suggest that the reason why they have the right to teach, the opportunity to teach, and the necessity to teach is because they are experts in the law of Moses. And it would appear that the, these are either legalistic Jews who, or that these are Gentiles who fancy themselves as Jews. These are either Jews who want to promote the law of Moses and all of that goes along with Judaism, the keeping of the festivals and, and the return to Judaism or it refers to Gentiles who fancy themselves as Jews, who are impressed with Judaism, and who think that Jesus and the gospel are insufficient in order to have a right relationship with God. The problem is, Paul points out their presumption, desiring to be teachers of the law. A role reserved for elders in chapter 3, verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. What Paul is going to point out is it isn't just simply good enough that you have a working knowledge of the Bible, although that's a good thing. You need to have a working knowledge of the Bible, but you also have to have something in your heart and in your character in the way that you actually conduct yourself in the assembly as a whole. He's going to outline the qualifications for elders in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Are these self-styled teachers true teachers of the law? Not really. Why? According to Paul, they neither understand the purpose of the law, they don't understand the promises of the law. 
What they're offering is a legalistic heresy that suggests that salvation somehow could be obtained by grace through faith in combination with adherence to the law. The gospel is you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God lest any person should boast. God has done everything possible in order to save you. He sent his son to die on the cross, to rise from the dead. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. I'm going to suggest that these teachers acknowledge Jesus. I'm willing to go so far as that these were teachers who came into the church in Ephesus who identified themselves as people from Jerusalem or people from the Galilee, people who grew up in the Holy Land, who who had Hebrew as their first language and who understood the Hebrew scriptures and everything about it and who were even willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord, that he died on the cross, that he went into the grave, that he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, that they, they're willing to actually embrace the essentials of Bible Christianity and first century church, but they want to add something a little bit more, something else, just a little something else, because the, the essentials of Christianity are insufficient to bring salvation. So they believe you should be baptized. But they go a little bit further. No, you have to be baptized. You see, you're saved by grace through faith plus baptism. You're saved by grace through faith plus doing this. You're saved by grace plus doing that, doing this, doing that. And pretty soon the list gets fairly large. If the rest of the New Testament provides us with any clues... These false teachers want to impose circumcision, Jewish ceremonies on the church as necessary elements of salvation. But Paul is going to try and set them straight. He says to Timothy, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In short, he's going to, Paul's going to lay out the purpose of the law. The law is good, he says. Here the word, by the way, doesn't mean good in the sense of the opposite of what's bad or evil. Here the word good means useful. The law is useful. Why? Because it reflects God's holy character. Why? It reflects God's will. Why? It reflects God's righteous standards. The, the law is useful. In what way? It shows sinners their sin, Paul writes in Romans 3.19. Their need for a savior in Galatians 3.24. One Bible writer says, quote, The law forces people to recognize that they're guilty of disobeying God's commands. And it thereby condemns every person and then sentences them to hell, unquote. The, the, the law is useful in what sense? It has a legitimate application. In what sense? It gives us guidance and direction for living a holy life. It offers direction, but not justification. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. It offers direction, but not justification, but because by the law, no person is justified. Paul told the Romans in chapter 7, verse 2, that the law was holy. But following the law would never make us acceptable to God. The law guides us away from sin. 
and guides us to the standards of behavior that make personal life and civil life and relational life possible. The law convicts us of sin. The law offers an opportunity for us to recognize where we've gone wrong, to ask forgiveness. The law was meant to drive us to the sufficiency of Christ and the reality of the gospel because of our repeated failure to keep the law. So what constitutes an unlawful use of the law? There's a lawful use, and what's the unlawful use? Listen to what Paul says in verse 9, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Here the word righteous doesn't mean a person who's saved by grace through faith. Here the word righteous, I think, means an innocent person. Now, is a righteous person innocent? Yes. How do you become a righteous person in the New Testament? You become righteous when you accept Christ as your Savior. Righteous means made, ultimately the word means made acceptable to God. How are you made acceptable to God? You're made acceptable to God when by, by grace through faith you place your confidence in the person of Jesus in order to save you. But in this context, I think it means innocent. Knowing that this, that the law is not made for a righteous person or an innocent person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the unholy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. So on what basis is a person made righteous? Keeping the commandments? No. Can the self-righteous be saved? Not according to Luke 5.32. The false teachers don't understand the purpose of the law. And then the false teachers provide a purpose that it was never intended to have. Paul claims that the law exists not for the innocent, but for the guilty. In what way? The false teachers rightly believed the law was given to reveal God's standard. That's true. But the false teacher imagined that they could live up to that standard. That's not true. How many people have managed to live according to the law? That would be one. One person successfully managed, negotiated, somehow managed to come to the earth from the moment that he was conceived in his mother's womb, from the moment his mother gave birth to him, from the first breath that he drew to the last breath that he exhaled on the cross of Calvary when he said, it is finished. He's the only person who's successfully lived up to the law. Jesus. But the false teachers were claiming that the law of Moses was essential to salvation. And Paul points out that the law was for surprise. The lawless and the insubordinate. 
Paul then gives a list of three couplets, six characteristics that point to sins from the first half of the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that deal with a person's relationship to God. The lawless are those who have no commitment to any kind of law, any kind of measure, any kind of standard. The lawless are those people who are rebellious and insubordinate. The lawless are the people who say, you know what, I don't believe the Bible and I don't believe the Ten Commandments. I'm an American. I believe the Constitution. Well, do you live up to the Constitution? No. Help me understand. What is it that you believe in? Well, I believe that you should be good to each other. And are you? Well, no. You mean you have a standard and you don't even live up to your own standard? Paul lists sins against God. He draws them from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Lawbreakers and rebels won't receive instruction or discipline. The godless and sinful who show no reverence or respect to God, but rather oppose God. Paul calls them unholy and profane. Unholy people are different. They're indifferent to the law. But sometimes they're even hostile to the law. Unholy people aren't just saying, hey, look, whatever. Sometimes they become agitated when you do tell them there's a standard. And then Paul's going to draw further from Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 through 16. People who kill their father, people who kill their mother, people who are dishonoring to their parents. It doesn't get more dishonoring. Can you honor your mother and your, is it honorable to kill your mom and your dad? So if the Bible says, honor your mom and your dad, isn't the most dishonoring thing you could possibly do is kill them? I think so. He talks about murder, adulterers, and perverts, dealing with all manner of sexual sin. In verse 10, it says, for fornicators, these are people involved in every kind of sexual immorality that you can imagine. For sodomites, do I really need to explain that word? In the original Greek language, it is so graphic that I'm afraid to, to say what it says in the original Greek language for fear that, it will, that I'll be grossly misunderstood. But the word in the original language means exactly what you think that it means. It's a root word that is specifically, specifically can't mean anything other than a homosexual. Sexual immorality, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. These are people who swear to tell the truth and then lie. And he says, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Our culture has come to the place that was true of the Roman culture when Paul was writing these words. In the Roman culture, it was absolutely possible to celebrate sexual expression any way that you wanted it. Our culture has not only refused to describe sexual expression as a perversion, but has even used terms like wholesome and normal. By the way, there is a translation that says for fornicators, for perverts, instead of sodomites. The most literal 
translation is homosexual. There are powerful forces at work to try to legalize and legitimize perversion. Today in the news, I understand that Caitlyn Jenner is going to appear in the nude wearing only an American flag and his slash her gold medal. We live in a culture that esteems sexual freedom and expression as the highest freedom and the highest expression. And the Bible teaches that sexual perversion and homosexual behavior is disgusting and dishonoring to God. The Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is sinful, evil, wrong. And there are even people in the politically correct establishment of Christianity which would like us to say, you probably shouldn't say that, Gino. But if you look at verse 10, look at the line for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. Do any of those things seem like good, wholesome things to you? It can't mean good and wholesome. And then Paul adds anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. That should cause you to ask the question what is sound doctrine? What do all these sins on the list have in common? They're all contrary to sound doctrine. They're all harmful. But there's forgiveness. And there's hope for all of them. That's what they all also have in common. Do you know what the fornicator, the sodomite, the kidnapper, the liar, the perjurer all have in common? They can experience God's grace. They can experience God's mercy. They can experience God's freedom. They can confess their sin and receive cleansing and washing. They can be saved and they can be sanctified, each and every one of us, because I wish I could say to you, hey, I'm not on this list. But it wouldn't be true. I'm on that list in verse 10. Guilty of wickedness. But God in his grace and his mercy is willing to save me. Paul charges, again, commands Timothy to refute false doctrine in verse 3. Remind everyone about sound doctrine. And again, what constitutes sound doctrine? By the way, for you Greek scholars out there, the word sound is an interesting word in the original language. It's the Greek word hygienia. You know that word, don't you? We get the word hygiene from it. When I say the word hygiene, what comes to your mind? Clean, clean, wonderfully clean. Hygiene means clean. Hygiene is the word that we use to describe eighth graders when we encourage them to put deodorant underneath their armpits. Hygiene is something that we use to describe in brushing our teeth and, and taking care of ourselves. In the ancient world, it meant healthy. It meant whole. So that when Paul says, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to wholesome, clean, healthy doctrine, I want you to get this because it's so important. Christian doctrine 
by its very nature can't be unhealthy, broken, sick. And so in verse 11, it says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Sound doctrine is that teaching, according to Paul, that is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to Paul's trust. We don't have time. But if you want to know what that is, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read it for yourself. I don't have time to actually belabor the point. But in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you and which you received and in which you stand. He goes on and he says in verse 3, For I delivered you first of all that which I received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he rose, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, whom the greater part remain and are present, and, but some have fallen asleep. He goes on and he says, by, by the grace in verse 10 of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all of them. But not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The gospel is that amazing story that Paul preached concerning the life, the death, the ministry of Jesus, which saves you from your sin. That's the gospel. What else could we include besides 1 Corinthians chapter 15? All of Matthew, all of Mark, all of Luke, all of John, all of the book of Acts. When he's talking about according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to me we can of necessity say it's got to be Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians it's got to include all that he's written so how do we recognize the false teacher and the false teaching it's different from what's in your Bible it's motivated by something other than love and purity and sincerity And by the way, if whatever the false teacher is teaching includes that you're saved by grace through faith plus something else, I guarantee you it's false. But we'll continue our study next week. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Lord, there's so much information, so many verses, so little time. But Lord, again, thank you for your love. Lord, thank you for even giving the charge that, that this thing that we're asked to do to confront bad teaching and false teaching, it's motivated so that we could experience love from a pure heart. That Lord... We can have a good conscience and sincere faith. That the purpose of all of this stuff isn't to show how smart I am or how stupid another person is, but so that we in true love and true commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ could remind each other 
that we're saved by grace in order to live lives that are gracious. And so, Lord, again, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.